Well, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're without a Bible, you can turn to page 812 in the church Bibles, and you'll be right where you would need to be. Just a couple of things while we're turning there. Uh, one, um, if you have a question about anything that has taken place here this morning when we are through, I'd be happy to try to answer that question for you. And also, um, if we've never met and you would like to, then just keep that in mind as things progress. If you're wondering why we're going to read, which to some might be strange verses this morning, uh, we've been working through 1 Corinthians uh, beginning in October of last year. We took a few breaks here and there. So the reason why we're here this morning is this actually is the second part of a two-part sermon. And I just want to commend to you, uh, you can go online to our website and you can listen to the first sermon online. I think it's better than this one, to be honest with you. <laughs> but that being said, you should never rate sermons, but... You know, I, I'm just going to say that now. But anyway, I think that the first sermon will help give a foundation to what we're going to say um, this morning. And I think as we read through the verses, it'll begin to make sense to you. Okay, so verse 3, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man." Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So just let me say this. If you're the kind of person who takes notes and you put things down in your Bible, I would circle verse 3. I would circle verses 8 and 9 because these are creation principles. And Paul will explain to us why these are important. Verse 10, for this reason and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. And I would circle verses 12 and 13 as well. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Amen. May God help us understand these words this morning. So let's just bow and seek that help through prayer, shall we? Father, we are very concerned that we would be able to understand these verses rightly. And in order for that to happen, we need the help of the Holy Spirit as the word is listened to, and certainly, God, as your word is preached. And so we pray for that help now so that these verses, which have often been the source of confusion or debate or even harm, can be verses of clarity and progress and for our good. So we ask that in learning from you this morning, we, we may live out our given lives to the praise of your glory. And that our public worship, God, would be pleasing to you. For Jesus' sake, then we ask these things, Father, please. 
Amen. Well, here we are by the mercy of God at the start of another Christmas season. Christmas is just a few weeks away, and at Christmas time, many of our best and brightest thoughts come to us as we remember and enjoy the great truth of the Incarnation. So as we remember the Incarnation, that God became man and he dwelt among us, we know that Jesus was born into this world uh, by way of a woman. He had an earthly mother who gave birth to him. It It was a miracle. It was a virgin birth. Nevertheless, Christ came into the world as he submits to the Father the way every one of us in this room came into the world by way of a woman, our our mothers. Mary, the angel said, Oh, Mary, you are highly favored. Mary, Elizabeth said, Blessed are you among women. And Mary's own song in Luke 1, as she sang to God, From now on, every generation will call me blessed. Mary, in all this, by God's grace, was being the woman she was asked to be, submissive to the angel. Uh, Mary says, may it be as you said. She approaches the word of God from the angel with a studious question. How will this be? Then in great faith, she receives her answer. And again, she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be as you said. And Mary Mary then obeys her husband in the course of time. And she goes to Egypt, an unfamiliar place, under her husband's instruction, protection, and care, as Mary was told by God's messenger, the angel, that they had to leave. And with that, Mary takes what God gives. In fact, she does it far better than what we read of Zechariah, the high priest, the father of John the Baptist. He mistrusted God in essence. So Mary takes what God gives, a special place, a special honor, special sufferings and special trials, and a special function and glory, different at its core than that of a man. She is being what God created her to be, because she, like every man and every woman, was made for God's glory. Pay attention to this. Mary receives from God. But Mary does not insist of God. If Mary was made for Mary, then things would be different. But Mary was made for God. And because Mary receives and she doesn't insist, she's empowered. She's acknowledged from generation to generation. She is a woman. She is the most blessed woman, having bowed to God's order, and then knowing God's pleasure. And what an influential woman and mother she was because her son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his humanity at the cross was being just like the woman who raised him. For the son receives from God. He doesn't insist. He submits. He does his duty. The divine order is acknowledged as Jesus goes to the cross, just like his father said, verse 3, that's the divine order. Christ is the head of every man. The head of woman is man. The head of Christ is God. So this morning, we're going to look at verses 4 to the end of the, or to verses 16 in chapter 11. The problem that Paul is addressing has to do with public worship and the role of a man in public worship and the role of a woman in public worship. Last time we focused on verses 2 and 3 because verses 2 and 3 gave us this God-established principle that becomes the basis for the instruction that Paul gives about public worship. In other words, before we get to that uh, hairy hat issue, 
we need to understand what is a man and what is a woman and what is a man and woman in relation to each other in creation and certainly in public worship as God's word declares it. So verse 3, again, gave us that basic pattern. So there's a divine order in creation. God's order is given so that we could have order in our world so that we would not only worship the right God, but we would worship the right God in the right way. We then immediately noted so that we wouldn't fall foul of misunderstanding headship that the headship of a man over a woman no more diminishes the status and the worth of a woman than God, look at verse 3, God's headship over Christ could ever make Christ inferior to the Father. However, the fact of equality doesn't remove the issue of headship. Christ chooses to submit to the Father as his equal. So the woman, the wife, chooses to submit to her husband as his equal. We are co-heirs of eternal life. So this is not an issue of status. This is not who's the boss. But rather, this is an issue of function. And that's important. A man has a role, and a woman has a role. Last week, I told you that we were headed to the cities to pick up my son from the airport. We were on our way to the cities, and I was driving, and my wife was to my right, and she said, look out for the pothole. And so I did what every good man should do and ran over the pothole. And so she said to me, in light of what we said last time, she said, and you want to be my leader, right? <laughs> it's good, isn't it? Men and women are equal before God in status, but we differ in function. So this is, how do I live my life knowing that I was made for God's pleasure in such a way that reflects the character and the nature of God as a man and as a woman? So we said the Corinthian church had weaknesses. One of their weaknesses was when they would listen to the word preached, they couldn't make application. They couldn't make application in their lives and definitely not in public worship. So I want you to understand that at its core, these instructions from Paul are about appearance. So in some sense, in public worship, appearance matters. The, the appearance of a male and female worshiper before God, and look at your Bibles, and even before the angels. That's verse 10. And in that, we discovered that the implications of this was, one, how necessary and how crucial public worship of Jesus Christ is. And again, this is not meant to be unkind. This is meant to be truthful. Sometimes we might find it so easy to skip over all these uh, Sunday morning events. But I want you to understand that Paul is, is correcting a problem in worship, not by being pragmatic. He's not doing polling. He's not saying, well, you know what, this really doesn't matter very much at all. You know, it's just people getting together and singing and praying and preaching, you know, whatever. He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's being theological. And he says, again, this issue of public worship, which you guys need to fix, the answer has to do with how God created the world. So I want you to understand this. There's a problem in public worship. Public worship really, really matters. So much so that Paul begins at the beginning, creation, how God ordered this world to remedy the problem. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Because public worship is a big deal. Now, what we need to do is we need to understand these verses, first of all, in their original context. And once we do that, we need to make some application in our context. And one of the reasons why we need to do that is this is one of those verses, whenever you read like uh, newspaper opinion um, op-ed pieces 
or you read the comment sections on, on the World Wide Web where people have an article and then people make comments. This is one of those verses where people would use and say, you know what, the Bible is such a silly book. You know, it's used by weak, silly people. They're superstitious. I mean, they can't even get their hair length right. I mean, what are they talking about here? So, so look at your Bible, for example, verses 14 and 15. Is it really wrong for a man to have long hair and for a woman to have short hair? Is that what those verses are saying? Or was that for then, and it's not now, and how would you know? Well, we're going to know with God's help. So we have three little points to work through. Number one, what was happening. These are in the back of your worship folder. We're going to understand their context. Number two, why it mattered, God's glory. Then finally, how do we apply our good? Okay, so let's look at their context. Number one, what was happening. In first century Greece, the way a man and a woman dressed in everyday life was very much the same except for the woman's head covering. That was the one real distinction. Now, the covering was not the equivalent of a Muslim veil as we understand it today, uh, worn by a woman. That's not the same thing. It was just basically a little top. And the normal everyday dress of Greek women then included this veil, we'll call it. However, the only women who did not wear these veils were, pay attention, the high-class mistresses of those men who were the rich and the powerful and the high-ranking, Right, Because wealth brings some unhelpful privileges as well. S- women who were slaves, they would have their heads shaved so they would need no covering. A woman who was caught in adultery and part of her punishment was that she would have her head shaved so no covering was worn. And you may recall that there was a pagan temple, the Temple of Aphrodite, that had thousands of female prostitutes. And the way they would wear their hair was essentially they would let it hang loose. There was no veil. They would let it hang loose to reveal to those who passed by, in essence, they were available. So this is what I want you to see, that in that time and in that place, head coverings said something about who you were and what you have done or, to be honest, what you were willing to do. Consequently, no covering of a woman's head said she was either a high-class protected mistress, a, a female slave, an adulteress, or a temple prostitute, and everybody would know this. Everybody would know this. Therefore, when the common Christian would come into public worship, knowing that there's no special re- uh, dress-up rules for public worship, men came in with no head coverings, women came in with head coverings, because that was a normal custom of the day. So in public worship, what apparently was happening, happening was that some of the women in the context of worship, and by the way, we're going to learn that uh, this church had horrible problems with public worship. They were disorderly. They were rowdy. They were all over the place. And so in public worship, some of the women would kind of throw off their head coverings in worship, which would allow their hair to hang long and fall loose. This then would be a major distraction for the men in worship. And in that context... It was an absolute denial of a visible expression of a married woman's submission to her husband and to Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that it wasn't just about her husband. When a woman, especially as it were in that context, when she let her hair down in public worship, she was essentially saying things that ought not to be said. She was out of order in a setting that demanded order. But not only this, because 
Not only were her, would her husband be distracted, other men in worship might be distracted as well. And of course, there were some men in that context, they weren't there because of Jesus Christ, but they were there because they were looking for something else, if you know what I mean. So if they saw this woman do this with her hair, then it could send the wrong kind of message. Now, let me say a couple of things about this. These things came to mind as soon as I wrote this. One, I remember a long time ago before I was married, I used to attend church with a good friend who's still my good friend. And we would walk into the church and the first thing he would do, would go right, he would go right to the restrooms. And, and this would happen over and over and over again. Finally, I was just like, this is just too weird. I know this is creepy, but I said, I'm going to go in there and see what he's doing. Okay, right? So I walked in there and he was in front of the mirror. And he was, you know, he's doing one of those things. And I'm like, you know, this is way back then. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Right? And he's like, well, I'm fixing myself up. I'm like, what do you mean? He was like, well, there's ladies in the church. And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I need to pick better friends, right? So I just left. And the funny thing is, it's not funny. He's not married to this day. <laughs> okay, that's the first thing. Okay, the second thing I thought, and I thought about this, and, and actually, I actually repented personally about this. I was thinking that the very first time I saw my wife was in public worship, okay? She was sitting just a couple of row, rows in front of me, and here's the bad part. I can tell you what she was wearing. I know her, I, in fact, this is easy. I can tell you the skirt she was wearing, the shoes she was wearing, the shirt she was wearing. I can tell you how her hair was, how her makeup was, her lipstick, everything. I could tell, tell everything about her. I could just remember it. But I couldn't tell you what was preached. I couldn't tell you what was sung. I couldn't tell you anything about the public worship setting, which was more important, right, than all the other stuff. So since worship is about God and Jesus Christ, and since Jesus is here with us now in the invisible realm, and since his angels are with us now, we've got to get this right. So the women in that context would have their hair down and uncovered. They would have either corrupted or redefined worship by making worship about themselves and their freedom. And thus they were being disorderly. Now, I want you to keep in mind something. That when Christian worship was introduced by Paul, if you would, in the first century, not only by Paul, but Paul in this context, uh, the equality of a man and a woman was being expressed in ways that they never knew in the first century. Let me just give you one example. In Jewish worship, w women were kept separate from the men. They were behind a big screen. Uh, the men always prayed with their heads covered. So in public worship, a man and a woman in that context, they never saw each other. But all of a sudden, here comes Christianity. And yes, a man and a woman are one in Jesus Christ. And so they would take this Jewish custom, and if you would, they put it into the realm of the new covenant. Men can pray and prophesy. Look at your Bible, verse 4, with their heads uncovered now. And he expects women to do the same, verse 5, but under submission. So this was new to culture. And I, and I want you to see that a woman's advanced in culture was, was being led here by Christianity. However, here we are again. Because God is a God of order, because he's holy, one of the things that Paul is telling them is this. Appearance are important in public worship. Now, I'm going to say that again. Appearances are important in public worship. Now, if you hear that uh, statement mistakenly in kind of a wooden way, then you just heard there is a specific dress code for public worship. And clearly there is not. 
And if you heard that in a mistaken way, you might take it a step further and apply your own wardrobe specs on how you think people should dress for church. You know, so really nice people that are dressed really nice, that must mean they're snooty. And the, the person that comes in average looking, well, that must mean they're humble. And the really messy people, well, that means that they must be really closer to God and they're not very materialistic when all it could really mean is that they're messy. Right? So, if you take that statement that way, then that's what you'll get, which is horrible. But if you take that statement by way of principle, hopefully you heard this. For God's glory and for each other's good, there can be no distractions in public worship on the basis of how we present ourselves and how we carry ourselves, in essence, how we appear. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, this is what John Stott said. I love this quote. He said it a long time ago. As a single man, he said this. In public worship, most women know the difference between what is seductive and attractive. And most men do as well. But that's an honest statement. And so that's what Paul's saying. That what was happening in their context. Can't be any distractions, proper submission, because this is how God ordered the world. Uh, Christian women in Corinth who, who participated in worship were to keep their heads covered, yes, to display God's order, to allow their freedom for everyone, to be wor- uh, for God to be worshipped correctly, no hindrances, keep your freedom in check for the good of others. Now, before we get to the next point, let me just say this as a brief aside. Some of you probably have seen ladies who walk around in church settings with their hair in buns and they have sometimes a veil that covers their head. And if you ever wondered where they got that from, they got it from 1 Corinthians 11. It's probably the same thing with men in hats, to be real honest with you. So what they said, the ladies who wear their heads in buns with covering, this is what they said. We understand that Paul said that for a woman to let her her hair hang loose, if you would, in church, was wrong for that time and for our time. So in verse 15, if you look at your Bible there, you'll see where um, Paul says uh, this hair is their natural glory given to them for a covering so that their hair won't be sung free. So their hair then is a covering. It's not to hang. Because loose hair, as we said, sends the wrong kind of message in that context. Now, many people would look at that and say, okay, that's why now I should wear my hair in buns and wear coverings over my heads. And I've been in churches where the ladies dressed a certain way and they would have the buns and the covering. And they got that again from 1 Corinthians 11. And you could go to churches even now, as strange as this might sound, and there are women with hats on their head and they took off their hat. You would see their hair in a bun and they say the reason why they do that, again, is 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, they look at verse 15b, and they say, which says, For long hair is given to her as a covering. And they say that's the only time Paul mentions the word veil. Uh, parabolio is the Greek word in the whole passage. So they say that we've read too much into the text, and, and this veil is not actually a covering, it's hair alone. But, of course, some actually wear a covering. But it just want to say this, look at verse 4. If that was the case, then verse 4, men who pray or prophesy with his head covered dishonors his head. If covering was hair, then every man in here should be bald, right? Because if their hair is the covering, and we shouldn't have a covering, then we need to get rid of our hair, right? So bald men, if you're here, you're in the right, and on the rest of us, we're in the wrong. Now, just let me say this. 
as if it wasn't hard enough to be a follower of a crucified king, the Lord Jesus Christ. If that wasn't unconventional enough, why add to kind of needless breaches of cultural custom? If we're going to draw attention to God, let it be in good deeds, in good words, proper conduct. Let that be the main things we are known for, right? You know, in public worship, clean, neat, smart. We want to stand out, yeah, by our good works, by our good words, by humility of life and of service, not because of our wardrobes. Is that fair? I think it's very fair. Okay, on to the second point. Why this matters? Well, I think you're getting the flavor of this. It matters because God's glory matters. God's ordered this world in a certain way. We express it in some way in public worship. And if you look at your Bible, verse 5 and 6, Paul's so strong about this that he says, okay, that it's a disgrace if a woman comes into the public worship in a certain way and it's akin to either prostitution or adultery, or we'll just say extreme, extreme feminism. That's how strong he's being here. If a woman will not wear a sign of authority on her head, again, in that context, then she should have her hair cut off, and she should be like a prostitute or an adulterer or the rebel woman. So I want you to see this is not a marginal issue from Paul. And then when a man or a woman dishonors their head, as you see there in those verses, does that mean that they dishonor themselves, their head, or Christ? their head. Which one is it? Well, just let me say this. I think it's both. Proverbs 30 says this. When a child dishonors their parents, he brings grief on himself and on his parents. So in other words, if if men and women get 1 Corinthians 11 wrong, not only do they dishonor themselves, but they dishonor Jesus Christ, the one who they're there to worship and submit to. So clearly, the principle Paul is stressing in our worship is, one, worship really matters. Two, it is intended to give God glory, the glory due His name. So when God is worshipped properly, no one is dishonored, everyone is helped. So no distractions by the way we carry ourselves and present ourselves in public worship. I think that's what Paul's saying. Now, look at verses 7 to 13. What could be said? Well, I think as you look at that, by way of principle, the issue is it's not so much what a, a woman has on her head, it's what's going on in the woman's head, right? Verse 7, a, a, man is both, is, a man is both the image and glory of God. He represents God's line of authority and headship. No covering or veil in that context, which are signs of submission, are needed, right? Man's authority was a given authority at creation. Woman, verse 8, is the glory of man, okay, which means this. A woman was not created to reflect the image of glory and glory of God as a ruler, but she was created to reflect the image of God and his glory as a helper. I'm going to say that again. Woman was not created to reflect the image and glory of God as a ruler, but she was created to reflect the image and the glory of God as a helper. And ladies, don't be too turned off by that word helper because the exact same word is used of Jesus Christ. So, If you go back and read your Bibles, Genesis 1 to 3, you'll get this picture. Even Adam bore the image of God in knowledge, in righteousness, and in holiness at creation, but not in authority, right? That was something God gave to Adam alone. And the effects of the fall is that, one, either arrogant maleness and defiant femaleness with the former working itself out in kind of ugly, stupid male chauvinism, 
the latter working itself out in kind of unhealthy feminism, or two, uh, the unwillingness of the man to step into his authority, therein, by necessity, the woman has to do what she was not designed to do or intended to do on her own, and thus you have disorder. So the man basically bows away from his authority position and says, well, I'll just let the wife do everything, and then you have just utter disorder. And as a pastor, I've seen that happen, and, and it actually ruins families. Now, again, to further underpin this creation principle, verses 8 and 9, Paul gives us two facts of our history. One, the woman derived her origin from man, right? Man's origin is from God. Man came from the dust, woman from man. Second, she was created on his account and not he on her account. In other words, think of it this way. A woman is not intellectually, morally, spiritually, or even functionally inferior to a man in any way. However, she is unique from man in this way. She comes under the leadership of man, his protection and his care, and she is to be, Genesis 2.20, a helper suitable for him. Woman was made from man's body for man's help. And man has this authority, but his authority is under Jesus Christ. So it's not his own authority. Okay, which is probably why Paul wrote verses 11 and 12. Do you see him there to balance out verses 8, 9, and 10? A man and a woman are joint heirs. We need each other desperately. Verse 11, in the Lord, we are interdependent, right? As husband and wife, we complete each other. Verse 12, a woman came from man. But, and here we are, that wonderful balance, the rest of men, where did we come from? We came from woman, right? John Calvin says it like this, let them tied together, let them be tied together by this bond of mutual service. So what I want you to see, there's a beautiful balance here. This is not male domination. It can't be that. Nor is it female domination. It can't be that. This is like a beautiful dance of equality and responsibility given to man and given to woman under God's rule, right? God made man and woman as equals in status, different in function. Women were made to complete man. Man was given authority to lead and care and protect woman. Now, in our own homes, I think we can figure it out as Christians. When we get this right, there is a beautiful harmony to our homes. And when we get this wrong, there's all this dysfunction when people are not doing... When the kids are being parents or the parents are being kids, that's horrible, right? It's the same with dad being a mom and mom being a dad. It's horrible. Now, finally, finally, verse 3. So how do we apply this to, to our context, right? So what Paul does is he so often do, look at verse 13. He basically says, think this out. Judge for yourselves. Okay, how do we make application today? Verse 14. Uh, is long hair for a woman cultural or Christian? Which one is it? Is, is short hair for men uh, cultural or Christian? Well, well, I think the major point that Paul is saying is that God has made men and women differently, so we should enjoy those differences, right? Creation reveals this. Nature itself reveals this. I mean, frankly, our bodies reveal this. So think of it this way. If short hair is Christian... Okay, let's say that's the case, then, then how long is too long for a man? Are you with me? So are we, all, are we like the one-inch long club, or are we the two-inch long club, or are we like the four-inch long 
hair club. Which, which one are we? And, and then how short is too short for a woman, right? If we're going to do that, is it will be the four-inch club or the six-inch club or, or the eight? You can't have your hair past eight inches. Now, you see, you get into a terrible mess here. So is there a proper way to understand verses uh, 14 and 15? Well, I think there is. Nature itself teaches us that we have all these instincts in us, inner perceptions, which bear testimony for man as man and woman as woman. Basic instincts, true for all time and true for every culture. Now, the nuances of that culture should be understood. They better be known and they better be appreciated. So, so in relation to hair, this is from my commentary from John Piper. How does nature teach what length hair is proper? If nature takes its course, man's hair gets just as long as woman's. That woman wore long hair in those days and men relatively short hair was due to cultural custom, not any absolute natural law. The cultural symbols of femininity and masculinity change. In America, Paul could say, doesn't nature teach you that a man should not wear a dress? Right? But the teaching of nature rooted in creation does not change. In other words, this is a man and this is a woman. So Paul is saying one of the ways this nature or this instinct reveals itself is that a man's not supposed to look like a woman. And a woman's not supposed to look like a man. And that's all Paul's saying, and that's pretty fair. Paul wants women to dress normally and naturally in Christian worship. He wants men to do the same. Women don't display a rebellious attitude towards your husband in public worship. Men don't display a cow-towing attitude towards your wife. It's not good for either one. God wants our worship to be freely given. And he wants our worship to have no distractions. So don't ignore the obvious truth of creation, verse 3, nature, verses 14 and 15, and instinct. This is a man, and this is a woman. God made you like that. So, so don't ignore it. So when you look at verse 16, what's the big principle for us as a church? Well, head coverings is not the issue. Hair length is not the issue. Verse 3 is the issue. How we work ourselves out and the world God has made and the worship God should, should be due and how we carry ourselves as men and women in those contexts. So anything we would teach in any place, now stay with me, okay? Any instruction we would give from 1 Corinthians 11 and anywhere in the world should essentially say this. Ladies, don't do anything in your culture which would lead your culture to assume that you reject your femininity or your submission to the husband. And again, that's fair. So the principle is timeless. Our instincts, God-given, are timeless. The cultural application will vary. And let me just give you this by way of a, a soft warning. Our cultural variances need to expand, right? Because you're going to be weird about how people come into church. The church doors are going to be like that wide open instead of this wide open. So we want to be people, 1 Corinthians 9, that are cosmopolitan. We've got to be that way. And at the same time, this is a man and this is a woman and these are their roles by God. Now we need to get done here. And I apologize, I'm going a little bit too long, but, and I'm almost done. But we need to say this, and then we'll be done. As Christians, we ought to reject the abuses committed by men in the past and the present that demote or redefine the God-given excellence of the role of the woman in the world he's made. 
God forgive us men that we've ever thought or treated our wives as either second-class citizens or we failed them in our leadership in any way whatsoever. As Christians, we should reject that femaleness and femininity is, is only a matter of cultural conditioning or it came to us because of a backroom meaning of angry middle-aged men many, many centuries ago who somehow determined this is what a woman should be and this is what she should do and should not do. Femininity is a God-given gift in creation. Yes, there are some, uh, and I'm quoting here, antiquated gender roles of a bygone era that, that abused male headship. But you can't throw male headship out because God established it in creation. So then we reject that we have it perfectly right here and now, that our culture and even this context has it perfectly down. We have to reject that. We have more work to do. And so we rejoice in the liberating aspects of women, especially in the past two centuries. And we should just say, we should thank God for the great benefit of women in every sphere of life, in business, in academics, in the home, in government, in entertainment, in music, that women contribute to society in ways they hadn't had the privilege of enjoying in past times. So as Christians, we reject stereotypes, right? Stupid things people say is this is a woman or this is a man. We reject stereotypes. But as Christians, we embrace the archetype. In other words, the original pattern. Verse 3, this is the model, uh, the reflecting the mind of God, how God ordered this world. So, so gender distinctions are right. Because there is a difference. When we, have, when we look at a person and we have to say, what is this? Right? We look at a man or a woman and we have to say, what is this? Then there probably is trouble. And the Christian should avoid that. One last thought. The world looks for meaning and happiness through self-assertion and self-expression. Right? I've got to express myself at the expense of God and the expense of others. The Christian knows, and this is Mary, this is perfect, this ties us all together. The Christian knows that meaning and happiness is found in not in self-assertion, and certainly not self-expression, but rather in submission and self-abandonment. In, in other words, be what you are. Be what you are. We're done. <laughs> Thank you for holding on with me. Let's bow together as we pray. Now, Father, these verses, as difficult as they are to understand, are incredibly important. The lesson is we just need to be what you made us to be. We should embrace it. We should enjoy where providence has put us. That we should be what you made us to be. We should start there as a Christian man or as a Christian woman. And as we go and live for your glory, which is our primary concern, whether it be in the home or in the workplace, or in the church, or in the public square. Help us to stay on that line, to avoid ugly stereotypes, and to embrace the archetype, the pattern that you gave us that began in verse 3. God, help us to understand these things. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.